Lower Main Street in Calicoon. Events schedule and information at theoutsideinstitute.org and on Instagram. From Garnet Health Medical Center, Catskills, with campuses in Harris and Calicoon, offering inpatient and outpatient services to Sullivan County and surrounding communities. Learn more at garnethealth.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This is Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen local. And welcome to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Friday, Patricio Robayo. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe. We made it through the week. We are here on the Friday evening. In the second half of the show, we'll be talking live in our studio, Dara Hartman, the author of Battle of Ink and Ice, about his upcoming DVAA Summer Salon that's happening on Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. But first, it's Friday, which means we talk to Chris Rowley from the Schwangang Journal every Friday, letting us know what's happening in Ellenville and Ulster County. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the show. It's been a long road uh, for cannabis here in New York State. Um, it's still going ongoing issues. We, we talked about maybe uh, a year after it was initiated, but uh, it's a little, it has been a long road. What can you tell us about what's going on with the cannabis? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and uh, as, as I was saying in a little article, New York's New York State's slow, halting progress towards a functioning legal cannabis market is blocked once again by a lawsuit. Uh, now, this is down to the CAURD uh, rules that were brought in, I think, last year. Um, that's the Conditional Adult Use Retail Dispensary Rules, CAURD or CORD. Anyway, uh, four veterans have, uh, have sued to um, uh, overturn the rules or get them changed. Uh, so that veterans can get into the, the line for um, dispensaries, so for dispensary licenses. Those delays combined with inaction on the front, from the federal front towards full federal legalization is raising concern in Ellenville and Ulster County uh, that it may you know, halt Cresco Lab's um, ambitious effort to set up a very large uh, growing and producing uh, is it a factory? I mean, when when you're just growing plants and then doing stuff with plants, is that a factory or do we call it a plant? I mean, <laughs> it's difficult. But anyway, uh, that is they already have full permit for it, but they haven't gone forward, and everyone's getting nervous that New York State is basically driving the big companies out, um, which would leave Allenville high and dry again, which is really sad because this, this would be a great thing for Allenville and for our whole area in terms of jobs. Um, you know, and I know there are concerns, uh, cons- looking at other states that if the big companies, Curaleaf, Cresco, the others, it, it, get in, they take it over and they, they, they freeze out all the little guys. Um, and New York State doesn't want that to happen. 
So I, I get that. But for, for our area, um, Cresco Labs will be a wonderful thing. So we, we're all watching that very carefully. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just amazed about the, the amount of time that has taken for everything to roll out. Oh, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, there's a number of difficulties, right? If you get a dispense, now for about 450 people have these CAUID licenses. Only 24 dispensaries that I know of have opened. And the reason there is, well, we run into a number of other issues. Uh, I, I sort of lined them up yesterday. Um, finding a suitable location in a jurisdiction that allows cannabis sales. Remember, a lot of our, our towns uh, got freaky and or got uh, concerned and decided not to allow cannabis to be sold in those jurisdictions. So that's they're out. So, um, but then a town or a village that does allow sales. It still has a 200-foot rule um, for churches and combined with the 500-foot rule for schools, which can close out a lot of possible spaces. depends on how many churches you've got. The schools in our area tend to be outside of the towns, but not always. Um, and 500-foot all the way around it, that's it. You can't, can't have a cannabis thing. And 200-foot from a church uh, if it's on the same street. Anyway, then we had that lawsuit from that fellow from Michigan uh, that held things up for for months. Uh, that was finally he was bought off <laughs> and, and and given the opportunity to get a license in far western New York. And then there's the issue, complicated issue, which we'll work out. I'll go through quickly. For anyone without serious funds, finding finance is difficult for the for a cannabis shop. Banks are, are just not going to offer any help. And the the reason there is that there's the SAFE Act in Congress, um, which uh, just hasn't been fight, or just hasn't been passed by the U.S. Senate. Now it's been there. It was, it was brought to the Congress in 2013. So it's been around for 10 years, um, and it, it, it was basically so that cannabis shops wouldn't have to deal in cash. It's to get them access to the banking system so they can be as safe as any other business and not have large amounts of cash around, which draws, guess what, robbers. You know, they're that old rule, right? If a stick-up artists, right, you go where the money is. There's been to protect the public and stop violent robbery, robberies, the SAFE Banking Act was brought in. Uh, it's passed everything except the Senate, um, and there it's got blocked up because of Section 10. Section 10 was brought in um, uh, to get more Republican senators on board, and Section 10 was to undo some of the Obama-era Operation Choke Point initiative, which targeted retail gun sales and payday lenders uh, who operate in some states with fairly predatory interest rates. That didn't sit well with certain Republican senators, um, and so they brought in the Section 10, uh, and that is difficult language for some Democrats to accept. Uh, and anyway, it ultimately, it comes down to Senator Reid of Rhode Island, who objects to Section 10 and has introduced new language to narrow the scope of the bill. That, unfortunately, um, uh, he, he believes that the current language is too broad in Section 10 and would make it difficult for regulators to warn banks about fraud, fraudsters. So 
his concerns are said to be the only real thing holding the bill up at this point. Um, he is working on new language. The Republicans are very nervous about it all because this is a this is a vote that may go right across the bow of of a lot of their vote. But uh, at the same time, they are also aware that cannabis shops are opening in all their states or many states, and they're targets for robbers. And do they really want that? So there's this push and pull going on all, on, on all of those things. Um, uh, but then there's another concern, which is that, uh, let's face it, Republican Party is run by Senator Mitch McConnell in the Senate, and he's a highly skilled parliamentarian uh, and has been known to pull maneuvers to leave the Democrats looking embarrassed uh, uh, again and again. And so do the Democrats want to bring a bill like this, which has a lot of charge to it, a lot of uh, with their with their own voters uh, who are all maybe nervous about uh, marijuana, you know. I mean, it's it 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 is a subject that does um, stop conversations at tea parties, uh, you know. It's it's that kind of thing. Bring it to the floor. He said he would do it, and then he pulls a maneuver, and they can't they can't beat the filibuster, and it dies, leaving them embarrassed. So there's nervousness on that side. So, so far, it's all sitting there while they all blame Senator Reid, while Senator Reid comes up with some new language to uh, undo Section 10 or make Section 10 more palatable. Um, So that's what's holding that up. Meanwhile, that means that the big companies like Crisco Labs and Cureleaf uh, are still locked out of the uh, American banking system. And I, I believe, I, I did this a couple of years ago, I believe Cresco uh, does its banking in Canada. But, you know, uh, how they move cash to Canada, what, what sort of channels they use for all that, I don't know. But From what I understand now, they have a thing called CamPay, which is connected to your bank card, and you could pay for products using that. Um, I guess that's their workaround of, of not going through the banks directly, You're just going through a third uh, party. You know, well, so there you go. That's capitalism for you. You know, I mean, socialist planners would still be thinking about this at very early stages, <laughs> setting up subcommittee after subcommittee to. Uh, meanwhile, capitalism has already put something in place. That's the way it can work. Um, but you know, clearly, everyone would prefer to have you know nice bank accounts with large American banks and be able to do everything, uh, you know, um, the way everybody else does. But they're waiting for that. So that's still a problem. And the bigger problem is, can they raise money through the banking system and therefore take advantage of, you know, the usual lower uh, interest rates there? Uh, and whereas if they're outside the banking system, it all starts to get kind of like borrowing money from the mafia. You know, there's a hell, there's a big vigorish on it, you know, 20 percent or something. And, you know, that that that's that's a, that's not going to happen. That's no go. So, you know, everyone's waiting for the SAFE Act to be passed, and everyone's now waiting for the new lawsuit against the CAURD uh, rules uh, to be dealt with, uh, which is, that lawsuit was filed actually in Kingston and Ulster County um, Supreme Court. So we'll see what happens, whether it stays there or whether there'll be an appeal and it moves to the appellate court. But for the moment, it's in the Kingston Court. Um, And that We'll have to see. I, we don't know how long that will take to work out. The last of these lawsuits took months. So that's frozen everything. Meanwhile, um, the, the issue remains with the with negotiations between the state and the big companies 
as to how much they're prepared to pay um, to obtain what they want. And what the big companies want is what's called full verticality. They want to be able to grow their product uh, as we would like them to be able to do in, in Ellenville uh, in, in a 183,000 square foot uh, facility that looks like something that you might make uh, microchips in. <laughs> but uh, grow that, do put it through a production process, extract whatever they want from it or, or, or package it, um, and then sell it through their own shops. Uh, so they have 100% verticality and they can profit the best. That's the best way for them to profit. The deal with the state has been, well, you can do that, but you can only have 30% of the sales space in your own shops. Whoa, that's a, that's, that's a harsh restriction. Okay, you can have 50%. Whoa, that's still a lot. You can have 60%. So that, that this is how the negotiations have been going with them, and who knows how long they'll take and how long it'll go on. And the fear is, as everybody is sort of says at the end of a conversation about this, um, that at some point they may just pick up their ball and go home, which would leave us all high and dry. Um, that is a possibility. On the other hand, they look at the New York market and they think, well, you know, down the road, billions, you know, so why why would they do that? So we expect that the negotiations just go on. But this is New York State. And everything takes forever, right? That certainly seems that the case, especially for this issue. So uh, thank you so much, Chris, for giving us an update on that. We'll talk to Chris Rowley from the Schwankock Journal, letting us know what's happening in Ellenville and Ulster County. Until next week, Chris, take care. Take care now. We'll talk to Chris next week, Friday. Let us know, if you let us know again what's happening in Ellenville and Ulster County. Coming up for you, live in our studios. Daryl Hartman, author of Battle of Ink and Ice. We'll be right back. Radio Catskills Extraordinary Experiences online auction is happening now. Go to WJFFradio.org for your chance to win. One day passes to Legoland, New York. Met Opera, New York City Ballet, and American Ballet Theater dress rehearsal tickets, a private screening for 40 at the Calicoon Theater, and more. Bid to win at WJFFradio.org. Bid, win, support Radio Catskill. I'm Aaron Bendich. Join me for Borscht Beat, the Jewish music show on Radio Catskill. Each week I share rare, forgotten, and classic recordings from Jewish musical traditions across multiple generations. From Yiddish folk songs to instrumental klezmer, Yiddish theater, and contemporary performances. It's a grand tour of many musical landscapes. That's Borscht Beat, an hour of Jewish music in the Catskills, Sunday afternoons at 1 on Radio Catskill. Ballads and banjos, Saturday, we'll have music from the Caribbean, Brazil, and even Portugal. A little bit of blues, too, from right here in the USA. Sonia Hedlund, your host. I hope you will tune in and listen to some fine music on Saturday, Radio Catskill, 7 to 8 a.m. Welcome back to the local edition. 
news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Dale Harmon delves into the riveting tales of two polar explorers, Battle of Ink and Ice, masterfully encapsulates the renowned rivalry between Frederick Cook, hailing from Hortonville, New York, and Robert Perry, seasoned naval engineer from Pennsylvania. The author, Darren Hartman, will be in conversation with an award-winning documentary filmmaker and journalist, author Lori Gwen Shapiro. And this is all happening on Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. And Daryl is live here in the studio with me. Hi, welcome to the studio, Daryl. Hi, Patricio. Thanks for having me. Um, the last we spoke to you, I was talking earlier, has been almost a year to date. Uh, you've been on our air. You, at that time, you were finishing up the edit, or I think you sent out the manuscript. Um, so it's been sort of a whirlwind from then, and now you're going on book tours now, and you're have, having this new thing here, uh, the summer, being part of the Summer Salon here in Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. Um, let's talk about if folks sort of uh, remind folks of who these two people are, you know, the, uh, the, the explorers, uh, and, and remind folks of this rivalry between these two men. Sure. Yeah. So the book came out June 6th. Um, so it's out there. You can read it now. It looks at uh, these two explorers, Frederick Cook and Robert Peary. Cook, as you said, was from Calicoon, from Hortonville. Right. And these two guys both came back from the Arctic in 1909 and both claimed to have gotten to the North Pole. Um, this turned into a vicious feud because Robert Peary accused Frederick Cook of lying about having been to the North Pole. So in the history of polar exploring, nothing this kind of ugly or contentious had ever really happened in full view of the public. And um, just a crazy true story of, of, of fraud, of lying, of poor behavior and various forms of ungentlemanly conduct. And a story that really very thoroughly involved the New York City press of the period because right. two of the most powerful newspapers in the country, the New York Herald and a little paper called the New York Times, uh, each took kind of a financial stake in one of these explorers and more or less battled um, in favor of one of these explorers in this three months long public dispute that happened in 1909 over which American had indeed been to the North Pole first. Right, right. As in the book is called The Battle of Ink and Ice, and the ink part is the battle between the newspapers. Yes. Um, because at that time period, the newspapers were a thing for information, you know, no internet. It was the internet of its day. Um, so whatever happened in newspaper, that's all we, we find out about yes, these things. Yes, the media was yeah. newspapers. There really was no other form at that time, so they right, were very right. influential. Right. And so, so I guess it was a lot of research also going back to those newspapers, the, the New York Herald and the New York Times, researching past articles and there. Oh, yeah. And, um, I spent a lot, of times, a lot of time on microfiche and in these digitized newspaper archives, which um, honestly was a lot of fun most of the time because right. you're just, it's a window into this – previous era you find a lot of connections to nowadays and the way the media works today which is a big reason i was interested in this story but you are doing this sort of interesting form of time travel and it's a it is kind of a different world in a lot of ways which is what makes it exciting so so what got you first interested in in frederick cook and and exploring these you know the robbery and also this man yeah well i really wanted to do a book about old-time explorers i just find this whole um category of research really interesting and the risks they took the extremes they went to, the places they went to. I was drawn to the story because it was just so kind of scandalous and had all these various layers to it. It wasn't just your typical story of heroism and survival and adversity. It was really a story about um, culture and politics and trickery and and fraud, frankly. Um, so I came to Frederick Cook because he was one of the two protagonists of this story. 
and um, realized he was from the Catskills. Uh, at that time, I lived in New York City. I hadn't yet moved to 20 minutes away from right. <laughs> Frederick Cook's birth town, which is where I live now. I live in Youngsville. Um, but he is this forgotten character of polar exploring, and he's a fascinating individual. And I think even to the people who have studied him most and most deeply, he remains this sort of magnetic but also mysterious man of many layers um, whose true heart and feelings are tough to figure out. But he really has a sort of magnetic pull. I will add, if you're interested in Frederick Cook, another thing you can do in addition to reading the book is head over to Hurleyville because the right. Sullivan County Museum has some wonderful artifacts of his and he's a multi-talented guy and took some really beautiful photographs. And recently they've been um, reworking and framing some of his fine photographic work, both from the Arctic and from the Antarctic, because right. he also traveled to the Antarctic um, while he was alive. Right. That's that was my first experience of hearing this, this man's work uh, was visiting, moving up here and visiting the museum at one point and visiting, seeing that they had an explorer here, native explorer here. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, I say you, you mentioned like the media was was the internet of its day uh, back then, the newspapers. And I just remember hearing it, me, me in grade school just thinking about uh, the scholastic books and he always had, you know, uh, books on explorers and those exploring the ice, uh, the North and Solar Pole. Because that, that was a really uh, sort of the last time for that age of that type of explore, exploration. Yes. Of, of going to the North Pole was a big deal at that point. Yes, because no yeah. one had really made it yet. And we, we forget how large a figure these explorers cut in culture. It's nothing to do with um, the way explorers are viewed today. Where Exploring still happens, but nowhere near as central to the culture. Not the mm -hmm. type of stuff that makes uh, newspaper headlines in the same front page headlines. Um, and this was a time, no, you know, Exploring continued to happen, obviously, after 1909 and 1911 mm. when the South Pole was reached. But you often had people trying to get to places they'd been before, but using different methods, right? So someone right. had been to the South Pole, so then they tried to get there using a, an airship or something. And the same went for the for the North Pole. But we're talking about basically men and dog sleds trying to get to a place where no human has ever physically set foot before. Right. And um, very shortly after this period... There would not really be places like that, with the exception of maybe some um, some mountains, right? But on terrestrial planet Earth, right. men, women had been everywhere there was to go. And, of course, then we went to space and other places. Um, right. But a very exciting, heroic, in many ways a heroic time. And these explorers were really lionized and considered national heroes. Right. Of course, until this horrible controversy came out and then things took sort of a different turn, which is why this story is a bit um a bit different, a bit more complex. Right. And they say the, the controversy was the rivalry between these two men and was about of who actually made it uh to the South Pole, right? North Pole. North Pole, sorry. Yes. The North Pole. Um now you, you know, obviously you didn't know uh you knew some of the story uh when you first took on this project. Um did any did you discover something new? Were there any sort of revelations that emerged um you know, enriching your understanding in, in ways that you didn't have, maybe didn't, haven't anticipated? I think the big one is just realizing how much these explorers had to do when they came home from the Arctic or right. wherever they were going. Obviously, the sort of the real crucible, the place where it was about life or death was out in these wildernesses. But honestly, you look back on the letters, they had the correspondence, the archives that remained, and you realize they had to do a lot of things like self-promotion and organizing and talking to publishers and raising money, the fundraising, these sort of everyday mundane things. Um, 
maybe in many cases less exciting than the exploring, but obviously very important. And I think this sort of helps humanize them and round them out. They're not just these sort of burly men who fought tooth and nail against the Arctic and other dangerous sort of natural places. They were trying to make a business. They were trying right. to get to the top. They were hustling like like so many of us do. Um, so I think in a large sense, that's one thing I discovered. In the sort of small kind of smoking gun sense, I was in the New York Times archives and found, you know, this controversy has been looked at fairly closely by a few other scholars. I found something no one had ever found before in the New York Times archives, which was evidence of a bribe, essentially, that had been paid <laughs> by the New York Times in the midst of this sort of ugly argument between the two explorers, which right. sheds lights on the, the depths that some of these newspapers are willing to go to in order to help their guy win the argument. Right, to get the headlines, to get sell more, yeah. more newspapers. And if the New York Times were found to be bribing sources today, you'd certainly hear about oh, it. Oh, well, yeah, it'll be, it'd be the end deal. of the New York Times. <laughs> they would definitely get some egg on their face. So It's funny you say that. You, it, that's sort of what I, I'm now looking back on my first experience with Frederick Cook was, was it seemed almost not believable because it seemed packaged. It just seemed that guy's exploration was packaged to me. That was the first thing, and I didn't know anything about the robbery. And, and now it makes sense that, you know, who's almost going there with a purpose, doing that I had to document this in a certain way so I could sell this to the newspapers so to get my name and sort of get that that uh, sort of that fame. Yeah. What, what, was he, I guess, was he was he conscious of that? Of uh, Did he sort of ever said that publicly that, and, and maybe in his personal writings or something, that, you know, he sort of wanted that fame? Mm, that is a very good question, Patricio. I will try to answer it succinctly. I don't think Frederick Cook really gave away the game too much as far as yeah. what he was trying to achieve and what his strategy was. Um, I would say both these explorers and a lot of the other explorers I looked at leading up to this particular North Pole uh, bid, they had their stuff together pretty well. You know, they had plans for how to get from A to B to C, not just in the Arctic, but in terms of their own career, right? And um, they sort of, they basically knew what was expected of them as far as how do you prove you've been to these places. Um, and so, And so they had to think about that before they even went. How right. do I show that I went here? I need witnesses. I need to be taking some of these astrological, um, astronomical readings. I need to be using these instruments to navigate and also prove I went where I said I went. You know, without getting into too much detail, Frederick Cook did talk about his travels in a kind of vague way. He was a very literary man. He was creative. He was a fine writer. And that made for very compelling reading. But if you were a scientist or you're just looking very explicitly for the facts of his journey— you didn't find as much detail as you often wanted. Hmm. So that was kind of the, some of the tension in his work and in his writing about his travels was that very inspiring stuff, a little bit short on specific details. Right. Now, it's one of interesting in the process. You know, you're a freelance writer. Um, you uh, obviously have to write to pay the bills and do work. Um, you know, was it tough for you transitioning from like travel-focused based writing and, and you know, and writing a, a book by explorers you know, weaving, you know, historical fact and narrative into one thing. Was it difficult to sort of that transition going back and forth on a day, maybe sometimes on a daily basis? It, it was a pivot for me, for sure. Um, a wonderful one in most ways, just because writing books, this is my first book I found while writing it, that it's just such a bigger meteor exercise. Right. It challenges a whole side of your brain that I've never fully activated in my shorter magazine stories um, you're really getting to know characters, you're doing a lot of historical research, and you're just puzzling out the structural challenges. And I spent a lot of time doing that. I went for a very elaborate, complex structure in my first draft, which didn't really work and had to be simplified. 
these are challenges I'd never really had to deal with before. Um, so they were tough, but they're also very rewarding. Right. On a day-to-day basis, I did have to juggle quite a bit. I did not give up other forms of writing entirely while I was working on this book for four years. It was a lot of back and forth. Um, so that took some strategizing. I, I To be honest, I, I gave up a couple types of magazine writing that demanded too much mental energy so that I could save some for the book. Um, the good thing about this sort of back and forth was that I really just loved the book work for the most part, even when I was under the most extreme deadline pressure. There's just something very rewarding about it, doing a book on a subject you're passionate about. So I was highly motivated to get through the other types of kind of daily writing so that I could get back to the right. book work. So it gives you sort of motivation to get back to it, something you enjoyed more than, uh, Enjoy- and, and, and sometimes. Yes, yeah. for sure. It's not always easy, but I did want to, I've kind of, even if it's not easy, I'm kind of obsessed with the work. Um, so your brain just is wandering back to the book a lot. And of course, nothing lights a fire under your butt like a publisher's deadline. Right, definitely. So you're having this uh, conversation with uh, journalist and author, uh, Lori Gwen Sapiro. It's happening this Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. Uh, you and Lori will be there in person. So uh, first, I want to just thank you so much for coming here and live in our studio and letting us know about the book and your upcoming uh, talk at the Summer Salon Series at the DVA. Yeah, thanks, Patricio. Happy to be here. That does it for the local edition. We'll be back on Monday. We'll do this all over again. We're talking to Sullivan County government. Find out what's happening with the Sullivan County government and also talking to Derek Kurt from the Sullivan County Democrat. The latest news and updates. I've been your host, Patricia Robayo. You have the daily coming up, and right after that, you have the mixtape starting your weekend off. Have a good night, Lucy. You listen to WJFF Radio, Catskill, your station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Stay safe, everyone. Have a great weekend.